0: Hello and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more all at 15% off with code podcast 15 at checkout. That's right. Get 15% off of all of our products at LisaCondon.com with code PODCAST15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. I am so thrilled today to share with you my conversation with Bridget Watson Payne. Bridget is executive editor for art books at Chronicle Books and is also herself a writer and artist. She is the author of seven books, most recently, How Time is on Your Side. In her 20 years at San Francisco's independent publisher Chronicle, she has collaborated with hundreds of authors and artists to make their book ideas a reality. As you might have guessed, Bridget is also my longtime editor at Chronicle. We began working together over a decade ago and have worked on six books together, including Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, The Joy of Swimming, Fortune Favors the Brave, A Glorious Freedom, Find Your Artistic Voice, and You Will Leave a Trail of Stars. All in addition to the Values Deck and countless stationery products. We are fellow Capricorns, Super fans of Finnish design brand Marimekko, and attracted to all things colorful and modern. Bridget and I start our conversation by talking about her role as an editor, how she got there, what her job looks like, and how she finds new talent. But we center our conversation on the topic of passion. She posits that passion is at the heart of most long-term creative endeavors. Writing books requires it, having a creative career requires it, and engaging in months- or years-long creative projects requires it. We talk about what passion is, the benefits and pitfalls of passion, and what to do when your passion wanes. Let's welcome Bridget to episode 31 of the show. Bridget, I am so happy to have you with me today. We have known each other for a decade. I was thinking this morning about actually the time that we met. And I remember that I was in the middle of a year long project I was working on at the time called 365 Days of Hand Lettering. And you reached out to me, like, I think I had only been doing the project for like three months. And you were like, I think this project could become a book. Let's have lunch and talk about it. And so. We met for the first time in person at a restaurant near the Chronicle offices in San Francisco. And there, my book, Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, was born. And we have gone on to work together on literally dozens of titles since then. That was, you know, as I said, a decade ago, including several books and a deck and umpteen stationery products, which we both love. And I love that we're going to talk about passion today because we met because I was doing a sort of passion project and that's really how our relationship was formed and I've come to think of you as a champion of passion projects and you are yourself a purveyor of passion you're not just an editorial director at Chronicle you are yourself an author and an enactor of passion projects so before we get into all of that juicy stuff I want people to get to know you a little bit so tell us your story starting from childhood. (laughs) Life story. I know that sounds daunting, but describe your upbringing, your college years, and then sort of how you ended up going from there to this role at Chronicle where you are now. And that's kind of an interesting story because you didn't start off, I think even, you know, like you kind of worked your way up at Chronicle and I'm just so interested for people to, to hear your story.
1: Yes. Well, I'm really glad that you started with the story of You and Me, because I was thinking about that story this morning as well. And it's, it's a good one. I like it a lot. And especially because, I mean, whatever you are, a be- good one has gone on to be like just such a tremendous bestseller. And, you know, that book just, I think, exceeded. I mean, we thought it would be a good book, but I don't think we knew.
0: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It's like, I don't know if it still is, but at one time it was like the top selling art title in Chronicle History. So
1: for a long time, I mean, it may still be, I mean, it is tremendous. So that was, you know, all came out of us deciding to like have some lunch and chat and based on a passion project. And so that's a great story. And we got to go on to do stuff for 10 years and carrying on into the future. And yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area in the town of El Cerrito And grew up in a art and book loving household. My mom's an English teacher, my dad's a librarian. So I always had books and art around me. I was a theater kid in high school and also did a lot of art and went to college for communications and theater and then went to grad school for English Lit. So those were all of my passions, but I never went to art school. And I, you know, there are publishing classes that you can take, but there's, there's really not like a formal education path for publishing other than these certificate programs. And I didn't ever do one of those. So a lot of what I ended up doing professionally is, you know, not what I went to school for, which I think is pretty common. (laughs) And by the time I finished grad school, I had toyed with the idea, you know, going into a master's program in lit that maybe I would become an English professor. That's what a lot of people do with that degree. But by the time I was done, I knew I wasn't cut out to be an academic, and I had decided I wanted to work in book publishing. That Really, I realized the reason I went into to study English was because I loved books, and I wanted to be where they made the books. I'd be like, oh, book publishing, I want to go where they make the books. That's what I want to do. And everyone said, oh, well, if you're going to, and all my college was in San Francisco, undergrad at USF and graduate school at SF State. And everyone said, well, if you're going to go into book publishing, you're going to have to move to New York. And I was like, no, 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 I want to stay here. <laughs> I like it here. I want to. Living in San Francisco had always been my dream. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And it, there is actually a great deal of book publishing in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. A lot of it is small. A lot of it is pretty niche and subject-driven. Uh, small publishers focusing on particular things. And there are some mid-sized publishers of which Chronicle Books was for me, you know, kind of the pinnacle, the one I wanted to be at. But I spent, after graduating, maybe six months interviewing for all kinds of positions at all kinds of places and not getting any of those jobs. I interviewed at a lot of jobs and didn't get any of them because I didn't know what I was doing. I truly did. I had no experience and do nothing about book publishing. I was just you know, on whatever it was back in the day, Craigslist or something, (laughs) you know, finding job listings and sending in resumes, you know, and all my resume was all jobs I'd worked during grad school. So it was all retail and cafes and, you know, nothing relevant. So it was all entry-level positions, you know, receptionist and answering the phone and, you know, really basic stuff. And eventually I was lucky enough to get, the first job I got was a job at Chronicle Books, but it was in the customer service department. It was answering the telephone. And helping disgruntled stores when things had gone wrong with their orders when oh no they got their box of books but UPS had damaged them or something had gone wrong you know and I did that job for two and a half years and it was really hard (laughs) to because people only call customer service when they're not very happy so it's it's a little rough but I was lucky enough during that time, we had an in-house internship program where a couple hours a week, you could go and intern in another department. And I got to intern with an editor in the editorial department and help her out on Friday afternoons. And so I got to start to learn a little bit about like what actually being a book editor actually meant, which was my dream, but I didn't know anything about it. And so I got to know some people in the editorial department and learn more about that job. And eventually when an editorial assistant job opened up... Meanwhile, of course, I'm applying for all these other jobs at Chronicle that I would have been terrible at. Like a sales job, I would make a terrible salesperson. And to this day, the head of sales like teases me about like how, like oh my God, can you imagine if we'd hired you for that job? And I'm like, I know, it would have been so bad. But I did end up getting to be the editorial assistant for two editors, one of whom was the art book editor, who was my first like mentor at Chronicle. who was amazing. And then going on from there. And editorial at ed, you know, book editing, book publishing is one of the last like really slow industries. So it is an apprenticeship type of career where you go on very slowly kind of learning your trade over many years. So I worked my way up within that department, you know, learning how to do it, going from being an assistant to eventually being an editor. And now I help run the art publishing department at Chronicle. So I do still work on a few books, but not as many anymore these days because I help run things, but I do still do yours.
0: Yeah. So (laughs) this like idea that you had, that you wanted this career in editing ended up being true. Like you've, you've loved it. It's been great. Yeah. Say more about that.
1: I I mean, I went about it all wrong. I should have been seeking an internship, which that's the thing I didn't know because I was clueless. Uh, But I was right that it was the passion to get to the theme of our, you know, topic here was, was correct, that I did want to make books. I did care about art. I did care about books and that I was in the right place. And I do think that that gut instinct for the thing that I loved and wanting to help be a part of the making of the thing that I loved was absolutely an accurate career choice. It was then just the nuts and bolts, like figuring out, like, okay, how do you actually do that? And I think that's something we're actually not very good at as a, as a, I don't know, culture of like teaching young people how to actually, you know, we're sort of like, oh, do follow your passion, you know, have a career that's the thing that you care about and love, and it's like, okay, how? How do you actually do that? I mean, unless I was sick and missed that day in school, like, <laughs> I don't know. It really seemed like actually figuring out how to make your way into an industry where something you cared about was happening was very mysterious to me.
0: Yeah, it's like not part of the the educational system, at least in the United States. I think that like we approach work as this thing that you must endure. To live the rest of your life and if you're lucky you get to do something that you love or that you're at least good at or that contributes to society right
1: right or it's like it's it's very black and white it's very binary it's like either that like either it's going to suck and be terrible and you just have to put up with it nine to five and like it's the worst thing ever or on the other hand your job should fulfill you it should be this wonderful amazing like vocational like dream of your life, which also seems like just a fantasy, right? Like it's also work. Like they have to pay you to be there. So it's gonna like kind of be hard to some I mean, like the the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as is almost always the case with all things. Like it's a gray area. And we're sort of telling these two myths that neither one of which is helpful.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like I have enormous gratitude that I get to do what I do for a living. And yet I have some shitty ass days and there are parts of my job that I absolutely abhor that are sort of necessary. And as much as I can, I sort of assign those to other people when I can afford to pay somebody else to do something. But ultimately there's just certain things that I have to do that I don't like. And, and yet I still feel like I do have a a job that is very aligned with my passion. I didn't figure that out until I was nearly 40, but And some people go through their entire lives never figuring that out. And that's okay, too. It's just, yeah, I think our ideas about work are very binary. That's such a great way to put it. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your mission as an editor. like How you think about your job and why you show up to do what you do every day. Like, What does that look like for you?
1: Well, when I say that I'm working on art books... I always have to put a lot of footnotes and asterisks around that. Because when I say art books, what a lot of people picture are, you know, the kind of big, expensive art catalogs that you would buy, like in a museum, like a book of like Rothko paintings or something. And I've done that. I mean, I literally did a book of Rothko paintings. Like that is one small piece of what we do. But I am lucky to work in a department where Our definition of what constitutes art publishing is much broader and more inclusive than only that. So it encompasses fine art of that kind, but also illustration, the kind of books we're talking about, you know, you and I working on together, photography, graphic design, done some fashion, done some architecture, a lot of how-to and instructional publishing, some self-help, some, you know, all kinds of stuff, as well as and that's just the books, you know, a lot of stationery, a lot of formats, a lot of objects, all kinds of stuff. So a lot of what I would consider my mission with that whole overarching large swath of things is to invite more people to the party, to make art and art publishing something that is for everyone, something that is accessible and open and available to A lot of different people, both on the side of who gets to be published and then who gets to be the reader. Whereas a lot of art publishing can feel very closed off or exclusive or only for sort of the few or the people on the mountaintop. The kind of art publishing I want to do is always meant to be for anybody who wants to come to it.
0: I love that. I feel like the art world in general is sort of, or the traditional art world is very closed off and for certain people and accessible to certain people. And I I love that Chronicle is, like, writ large, not just you, is really about democratizing, you know, the art world or making it more accessible or inviting everyone to the party. What do you you enjoy most about your job? Like, what kind of, like, describe a day that is, like, a day where you wake up really excited to do what you do.
1: I mean, for me, the best parts of my job are always the creative parts. I mean, I am at my heart a creative person and my job is a creative job and like you said there are days when it is not a creative job there are days when you have to do parts that are not super creative and that's fine it's a job it's going to have you know all the parts but the parts that i get most excited about are working sometimes by myself sometimes collaboratively with teams here in the office sometimes collaboratively with my authors but getting to make something new that wasn't there before, getting to create something, getting to think creatively, getting to solve problems. I mean, certainly we have to solve problems that are annoying to solve sometimes, but also getting to solve problems that are fun to solve, you know, getting to, you know, sort of wrangle with something that isn't quite working and then make something that is working and that is beautiful, you know, and that can take a ton of different forms. I mean, the thing that's exciting about the kind of work I get to do is that people hear book editor and they picture you with your little red pencil, you know, marking up a text and being like, there needs to be a comma there. And I'm going to cross out that word with a little (laughs) line and stuff. And it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm I'm a book editor. I'm not an English teacher for one thing. But also, I mean, there are some book editors who do spend a lot of time marking up text. If you're like a fiction editor or something, then yeah. But because I work on visual books primarily, I do occasionally edit text, you know, well, I'll edit your text sometimes, but. That is a small part of what I do. And when I do actually do it, I kind of crack up because I'm like, ha ha, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the thing that everyone thinks I do all day long every day. When in fact, I do it, you know, once every few months. Like, <laughs> But so much of what I do, even when I'm actually deep in the editorial work, is with images, is, you know, might resemble more what someone thinks of as like art direction. Or curation. Curation, you know, image editing, like what's in, what's out. Sequencing, what order should these things go in, you know, that kind of thing or look, you know, talent scouting, like looking at new artists, looking for folks, reaching out to people, talking with new artists, talking with agents, you know, that kind of thing. And building stuff in-house from the ground up. That's one of the things that's really exciting at Chronicle is I think some traditional publishers, it's more reactive. You're waiting for projects to come in from agents and you're waiting to be pitched and then you say yes or no. Whereas here we really get to build things. I mean that's the example you gave at the very top of me seeing the project you were doing and being like, hey, this seems like it might be a book. Let's talk, rather than waiting for you to pitch me and be like, Bridget, I have an idea for a book. Let's talk.
0: Well, and actually, several books that followed were also based on interests or passions of mine that you were like, I think this can also be a book. You know,
1: I mean it's one of my favorite conversations to have, both with my existing authors and with new authors that I'm potentially talking to, to be like, what do you do? when no one is paying you? What do you do when it's not a job? I mean, especially people who do client work, who spend a lot of their time, you know, being paid for commissioned, whatever it may be, illustration, photography, what have you. But like, okay, in your spare time, when it is a passion project, what would you actually want to, because the thing is, is a book is a ton of work and it's a ton of time. You know, if you're going to spend two years of your life on something, what would you actually want to spend two years of your life on? I mean, yes, we're going to pay you, but also like, that's a big commitment of just your hours in the day. Like what do you actually have the passion for and the fire inside to want to devote your energy to in that way that you were already devoting your energy to before anybody was going to pay you for it?
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago that part of your job is like, talent scouting and like finding people. I know one burning question most of my audience probably has is like, how do you find people? Like, where is it that you you come upon people? I mean, obviously there's social media, but like talk us through a little bit of like that part of your job, where you find people, how you meet people, how you reach out to people.
1: Well, this is something I've really been giving a lot of thought to, especially the last few years as diversity and inclusion has become just like even a bigger topic. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about for a number of years. But as that has become more and more topic in the cultural conversation, we've increased our conversations about it here, thinking about the fact that you only see what you see, right? You only know what you already know. And if you keep going back to the same places that you're used to going back to, you're only going to see what you've already sort of self-curated and reinforced. And this is especially true of social media because there's an algorithm, right? So even if you think You're seeking out new things on the internet. Like, in fact, you are being steered. You are being sort of shunted down a highway without your knowledge or consent, really. And you have to very, very consciously retrain and refeed that algorithm if you want to see more diverse creators, more creators of color, any other metric that you are interested in changing in your online diet. And it's hard to do, honestly. Like, if you're trying to force the needle of online content to change, like, it's harder than you think in some ways. Like, the way that those algorithms work doesn't actually really want you to alter it. And that sounds like I'm, like, wearing my tinfoil hat or something and being a conspiracy theorist. But I think it's just, you know, it's easier for them to, like, sell you stuff if they know predictably, like, oh, you're going to like this because you liked it before. Like, a consistent user is, you know... A simpler user for those services. So I think that, yes, online stuff is extremely useful. I mean, it means you can talent scout, you know, whatever on the bus, but I think it is important to get out of the, you know, Instagram, whatever online sources. So being able to, you know, po- I hate to say post pandemic because I don't think that's accurate, <laughs> but post being entirely stuck in our houses. Being able to get back out in the real world and go to art galleries, go to museums, go to retail shops and see people's products, you know, any kind of illustrated prints and, you know, things that people are creating in the world, you know, being able to really get back out to like independent retail has been really exciting for me and independent galleries here in San Francisco and see who's like what artists are, you know, doing that kind of thing. And then doing online searches that aren't on social media, you know, just like I've been looking up creators in, if I'm interested in a particular field, like I was interested recently in ceramicists. And so I was doing a lot of online research into ceramicists, but not on Instagram, just on, you know, I was looking up articles about ceramicists and roundups and websites and, you know, other resources. So just trying to kind of Get out of whatever my normal sources of information are and kind of look further and deeper is usually a good idea because I will find things that I wouldn't hit if I just went back to the same well kind of again and again.
0: Yeah, and I imagine you're probably also kind of keeping your eyes and ears peeled for if you are on social media for artists and creatives of color or, you know, any other demographic that you're wanting to make sure gets included that you're sort of have a heightened alert for those folks as well.
1: Yeah. And I feel like some of the buzzwords around these things, you know, sort of start to feel overused and you start to hesitate about using, you know, some language, but I do think, you know, it gets overused because it's really meaningful. And I think one example of that is intersectionality and that I do think you can really use that effectively. You know, if I'm seeking, for example, to have more queer and trans artists and I'm also seeking to have more artists of color, you know, I don't have to look for those two things separately. Like, in fact, it's probably beneficial for me to be looking for both of those things at once and find people who are in both of those demographics. And in fact, those are people who've probably been doubly underrepresented. So yeah, in sort of just having your antenna out or your ear to the ground for, you know, you're finding artists and you're probably finding artists of all kinds of backgrounds, but being especially aware of, who you're spotting that has been historically marginalized.
0: What is the most challenging part of your position? That's a good question. I
1: think for me, where I'm at now in helping to manage and run a department, it probably is finding that balance between managing and running things and then also finding time for the creative. Like both of those are important parts of my job, but As with any time that you are wearing a couple of different hats and doing a couple of different jobs, you just have to, you know, find a balance, right? And figure out, you know, how are you going to allot your time for a couple of different things that require pretty different focus and require pretty different sort of mindset. I work with an amazing, amazing team and people who have largely a lot of people who've been at Chronicle a long time and have like a lot of experience and are like the brain trust that I work with is amazing. So it's not like I'm, you know, I say helping to run because I feel like, you know, these people like run themselves basically. Like I have like very like little credit for what goes on, but it is still, you know, a certain amount of work. And so figuring out what that looks like And then also doing projects and doing the right amount of projects, not doing too few, not doing too many, you know, kind of keeping the workload right and giving my authors what they need while also giving the team here what it needs is, you know, I mean, I think that's almost always the challenge when you are doing a bunch of things
0: is finding that balance. Yeah. How is passion connected to what you do every day? Like what are all the ways?
1: I think for me, I've always thought that a big part of what I do, I mean, yes, my own passion is books and my own passion is art. And so I am here doing a job that I have great passion for, but also such a big part of it is, I mean, I have worked on hundreds of books with hundreds of authors at this point, and I can't think of a single one who wasn't doing it because of passion. Like i I'm hesitating to say that. I'm like, wait, can I think of an example? No, I literally can't think of anybody I've ever worked with who did a book who didn't feel passionate about it, who was was sort of like, oh, I'm just dialing it in. I'm just doing a book for some random reason. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Like, I've never seen that happen. Like, people do this. People become authors because they passionately have something to say, something to make, some art that they are doing, whatever it is. And so... To me, being the person who is helping them carry that forward, like from, you know, the little room that they're in by themselves into the world, show it to other people, is huge. It's huge. It's a huge honor. It's a huge responsibility. And it's tremendously exciting. I mean, it's really like, oh my God, look what we get to do. I mean, there is it never, ever, ever gets old to get the finished book, to get the finished product and to, for the first time and to hold it in your hands. Like, that's probably the thing I missed most during the pandemic, like working from home is I didn't get that. I missed my coworkers too, cause they're really cool, but I got to at least see them on, you know, zoom or whatever, but getting the finished thing and seeing like, we made this thing and it is this person's idea. And now it is real in the world and it is a physical object. And now we get to share it with other people. Like It is a physical manifestation of passion. Like, that is so cool. So getting to sort of midwife that is so rad. So I think, you know, as much as it is my passion to do that, I think also just getting to sort of witness someone else again and again doing that is amazing. And that's why I, you know, within the last several many years... I'm getting old now. So anytime I think something was five years, it was probably 10 years, you know, like what is time? Time is a flat circle. I have realized that I also needed to really start making more time for my own work as a writer and an artist and my own personal passions. I think it took me a while to come to that, but it was slowly sort of seeing other people doing that work and being like, oh, okay. Like I also need to do that piece for myself.
0: Yeah. So let's dive into that for a second. A few years ago, uh, it's probably more than a few years ago. So similarly, I have like completely lost track of, or have a, a hard time managing the passage of time, the older I get, but there was a point at which you, and maybe some of this had to do with your daughter getting older and being more independent, or you sort of having this discovery and then making more time for your own work. So you've published How many books? Two. Actually, seven. Seven. Okay, this is how off I am.
1: But some of them are kind of weird. Like some of them are, some of them are kind of weird. But like the total count is seven.
0: Seven. Okay. And then you also have gone through periods where you've done painting projects and you had a show. So talk about, like, I think one thing that, and I think a lot of people in my audience can relate to this. Like, people are in creative careers but they work for a a publisher, a design agency, or maybe they're just a freelance person like I am. And they work for a lot of clients and publishers. Making time for your own personal work as opposed to being art directed or being the one art directing other people is like one of the biggest challenges. But when we do it, it makes all of our work better, right? We feel like fuller. So talk about... The importance of that and sort of like your leaning into that, you know, personal practice as an important part of your entire creative experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time to realize this because I think I was giving, you know, 110% of my creative energy to my job, which I think was appropriate for a long time as I was sort of building my career and, you know, figuring that out. But Eventually I got to a place and yeah, I have a daughter who's 12 now and it was probably when she was, you know, coming out of being a baby, you know, she was like four or five and I was starting to feel like I actually had, you know, was getting enough sleep when I started to realize like, oh, I really want to be pursuing these ideas and passions that I have for myself, both on the writing side and on the art making side and Within the last few years, I've gotten a little more serious about both of those things, and I got a studio, and I actually work four days a week at Chronicle, and on Fridays, I'm in my studio and really you know, have some dedicated time to devote to that. And actually, the last book I wrote, which, good God, came out in February of 2020, so nobody's read that book because it was <laughs> the worst time to bring out a book ever. I was like running around promoting it, doing all these in-person events. And then suddenly it was like, boom, like, no, no more book. But it was called How Time is on Your Side. And it was a book about time management. And it was exactly about this, about how do you make time for the stuff that matters to you personally when we all have jobs and maybe kids and whatever else you've got a lot of things going on. Because that was exactly what I was wrangling with, was like, How do you do this? And it's funny because it seems a little different now, right? After the last few years, like some of the questions and challenges have changed. But I think it's still a question in many ways. It's like, how do we balance all of the stuff we want to do in this life, right? And for me, it really, I really did realize like what a big priority this was. And especially during the pandemic, during the last couple of years, I made so much art I mean, and it was painting and drawing was such a huge and going to my studio was like an enormous joy in a time when I think, you know, like real joys were kind of (laughs) hard to come by and I didn't write much at all until maybe the last year or so. And then getting back into, I got back into a big writing project and that was really exciting for me. So yeah, it's become really important and that passion is really exciting.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this idea of a passion project. So typically when we think about passion projects, we think about kind of like time-centered projects or maybe they're infinite. They're not, you know, I'm going to do this thing for a year, but we say, and I, I highly recommend them. I don't necessarily call them passion projects, but you know, any kind of like daily project where you can take something you're interested in learning or you want, you're curious about, or you want to get better at, or you just want to blow up, right? Like something that you're a nerd for, and you just, you want to kind of dive in. So I've done several, a couple of which have actually resulted in, in books. People are always like, how do you kickstart your career? I'm like, just start doing daily projects. And certainly they should be around something that you're at least curious about, if not passionate for, or passionate about learning. I mentioned the one earlier that I did that was like a hand lettered something every day for a year. Now, only a hundred of those things ended up in the book that you and I made together. I did another project where I photographed my collections every day and then it sort of became something that I was known for. That actually happened before the hand lettering project, but it was a way for me to sort of show up consistently in my creative practice. It was a way for me to, to show up online and share my work, even work that was sort of like half baked, kind of took the preciousness out of everything. And I really feel like it's such a great practice for, I don't know, just showing up and also getting better at things and seeing what you're capable of. So talk, let's just talk about passion projects for a second. Cause I do think that there's like a lot of the books that you've published that are based on people's passions were not the result of daily projects. Like that's not necessarily what you're talking about, but let's talk about passion projects for a second. Cause I know you've done some yourself and like what you think they can do. And like the power that lies in, in showing up and doing something every day or every other day or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm a good question and it's interesting i i think that there is definitely something to be said for constraints or boundaries or giving yourself sort of an assignment or a i'm gonna do this but not that you know this and only this or you know something like that
0: I'm gonna use only this color or I'm gonna draw only this thing. Right. Or I'm going to
1: you know, I I've been doing a project that's just a very, very short journal. That's like a it's it's like the one line a day kind of journal, but even shorter. I've been doing it on an, an online diary keeping app that you can write as much as you want, I think, in this thing, but by the constraint of the Literally the way that the interface and the app is, if you write more than like these two little lines, it goes off the screen and you can't see it. And I don't, I just don't like the way it looks. Like when it goes off the screen, I'm like, well, I can't see it. I don't, I don't like that. I want to be able to see the whole thing I wrote. So I have to keep it like incredibly short or I just don't like how it appears. And that has forced me. By the way,
0: Bridget is a Capricorn also, so we're- we're (laughs) So tell,
1: yeah. Like, I'm like, it has to be in the little box and I have to be able to see all the words in the box and it's going to bother me if I- I'm smiling here. You can't
0: see me, but I'm smiling because we have so much in common in this way. Okay, anyway, anyway.
1: it's true. And like, so this is where I'm going to put a caveat because I think giving yourself these constraints, these like very Capricornish, very strict little rules and being like, these are my rules for this project for a month- or for a year, if you're really, you know, feeling ambitious, there is a lot of power there, I think, to sort of flex a muscle, grow something, practice something, get really good at something, or see what happens within those constraints. I did a project once that was drawing faces, because I'm terrible at drawing faces. I was like, I need to get better at drawing faces, so I'm going to draw a face every night you know, and I did it for like several ones. And I did, I actually got really better at drawing faces. I was like, oh, I'm making the eyes like way too freaking big. That's my problem. So I got better at making the eyes really small. And then my faces looked a lot better and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, good. You know, so there's a lot there, but if you are a Capricorn or if you are at all type a and wanted to get good grades in school and wanted to raise your hands in the front of the class like if you are that kind of adult who is carrying with you that kind of baggage of wanting to be a good kid i think there is also a danger in those projects like i think that you can do a number on yourself with them if you're not careful where you're like oh no i missed a day Now I'm bad. I ruined the project. Like, do I have to stop? Is the project wrecked? Like you can like get all up in your head about it, right? Like it's very easy to get all silly about it, right? So you have to kind of go into it, I think, ahead of time deciding when life inevitably messes me up, which it is going to because it's life and entropy and like stuff happens. What am I going to do? Am I going to just roll with it? Am I going to decide it's actually okay? (laughs) Like, you know, that there has to be both structure and also flexibility within whatever you're doing.
0: Yeah. Which leads me to this idea too. And this has happened to me personally, and I'm curious if it's happened to you, but sort of your advice about like, what happens if you choose something that turns out not a passion like, but you've already started the project. What do you, what do you do?
1: I think you abandon it. I think you're just like, this stinks and I'm not going to do it because I don't like it.
0: Like, Yeah. I mean, I think that's like my coach, Nina, is always talking about like, you don't have to like the thing, but you have to like your reasons for doing it. And you at least have to like your reasons, right? If you're going to continue something that doesn't bring you joy, right?
1: Right. There should be a compelling What's what's the thing, there's like a William Morris quote about have like nothing in your house that you don't know to be either beautiful or useful. It's like, if you're not enjoying it, it should at least be useful. There should be some reason. It's like doing sit-ups or something like, okay, you're doing it for at least a useful reason.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then there's also this scenario where you choose something and you you decide you're going to do it for an entire year or some very long period of time. And then you lose passion because it becomes a chore, Right. And again, the question becomes, do I try to reignite, you know, my reasons for doing this so that I can reignite my passion for it? Like, what about the thing is becoming dreadful? Is it time to call it quits? Because those are very real things that can happen when you start trying to do something every day.
1: And sometimes there can be ways to reignite things. Like, I've had some very long-term projects where I've been like, okay, I am losing interest in this, but I actually want to keep going. So what can I do? To reinterest myself in it, can I change the parameters of the thing? Can I change how I'm approaching it? to get myself back into it and back interested. Like, I also think that is possible. But you then you have, again, you have to have some flexibility to be like, okay, maybe I'm not going to just keep doing it exactly how I've been doing it. Maybe I'm going to alter it a bit to make it more interesting to me.
0: I think too, we've become like, we're in this sort of performative society now, especially with social media, right? Like you show up on, you know, January 1st and you're like, I'm going to do a drawing a day in this way for the next year. And every day I'm going to post them here. And then, you know, a few months in, you're realizing that like maybe you want to change direction or not do it as often, or maybe you want to quit. And yet I think a lot of people kind of hang on because they said they were going to do the thing. And so I think on one hand, like the accountability of showing up on social media and sharing the thing is actually really can be powerful. I also want to acknowledge that in every creative process, and I know you would, you would agree with this, like you're going to go through valleys where you feel terrible but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to quit. Maybe you just need to push through. So acknowledging that and, and being really honest with yourself and your followers about what's going on with your passion project if you do, or sometimes life just happens. Like you get an opportunity to, to travel somewhere, or you get COVID and you, you're too sick to draw, you know, like you just can't control those things.
1: Or if you do decide to change it, if you're like, I'm going to change this, I'm not, I'm going to not do it anymore, or I'm going to do it differently or whatever, because you're an adult and you've made an adult decision about what you're going to do, like, or you've made the adult decision to push through also fine, whatever. Also, nobody cares. Like nobody cares a fraction as much as you do. That is the reality. It's your life and you're the main character in your life and no one else cares. Like I have a newsletter and I was writing it every two weeks. And then I decided probably the beginning of the pandemic or something to switch it to be monthly instead of every two weeks. And I wrote in my newsletter to your point about like accountability. I was like, I'm, this is going to be monthly now because I can't handle this. I'm not, can't do this every two weeks. And I had several very nice, like friends write me back and be like, I would never have noticed like you did not have to say that. Like you could have just done it, and I would not have cared or noticed. And I'm like,
0: okay, fair point. <laughs> like, Didn't you write a book about this? <laughs> no one's looking at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's let's talk about no one's looking at you for a second because I do think it's it is the best thing that you've ever written. Although, 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 I
1: actually now I'm not sure about that. Like, oh really? I did think it was a really great point. Like one of the, it was one of the great lessons of me becoming an adult was that 99% of the time, no one is looking at you. That, like, teenagers think everyone's looking at them all the time. And in fact, you should just walk around and assume no one's looking at you because, like, you should do what you want and not feel like wondering what everyone's thinking. Which, yes, I think that is being an adult. And that's great. But I also think there's a lot of privilege in that. I also think that is being a white person, like, to a large extent. Like, I have I have revised that opinion since because I think... If you are walking around in the world and you are not a white person, then people very well may be looking at you. and Especially if you're in a... In a store or in a hotel or something. They may be surveilling you. And I think the fact that I didn't think of that when I wrote that is actually pretty messed up. So I have since, in my mind, revised that statement. But I do still think there's a grain of truth in it, which is that going from being a teenager to being an adult is about... Shaking off the idea that you have to worry all the time about the imaginary judgment of imaginary peers who are going to judge, like, your clothes or your, you know, are you doing it right? Are you fitting in right, you know, at the lunch table or something? Like, yeah, that's still true. But I do now put a big caveat by that statement.
0: I really appreciate that you brought that up especially for that particular example of like, nobody's paying attention. Nobody really cares. Clearly that is not true in that particular context, but in the context of like showing up online and like, how often you
1: post or something.
0: I remember I used to, uh, I post less often now, far less often than I used to on Instagram. And it just, it just doesn't matter. Like, I think I, for a while I thought, well, I'm going to, I've got these people who show up for me every day. And I'm like, actually they don't, they don't care. Right. Right.
1: You materialize and they notice when you do, they're like, oh, that's a nice post. Hello. Yeah. But they're not like waiting.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And so I think that's sort of more to my earlier point, like this idea that we often put so much weight on our projects or what we're putting out into the world or the accountability that we feel we have to other people, even people who have like not paid a subscription fee to, to see what we do. Like they're just consuming it for free, right? That we owe them something and we don't, right? So we get to change our minds. Actually, I have an, a, an upcoming episode on changing your mind with another guest and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So Let's talk about when passion can be problematic. You touched on this earlier, but you know, like Liz Gilbert talks a lot about how passion and, you know, she's defining it I think m- much more tightly than we are, but um that it can be problematic because it's like hot and it's like crazy and then like it eventually dies, right? And she likes to say it's really more about curiosity. But I do think there's a point there which is that we can get really excited about something and then invest a lot of time and energy and proclamations about it, and then we're on to the next thing. So that's maybe one issue, but talk about you know ways that passion can be problematic. I also think there's probably a relationship to burnout and some other things as well.
1: That's interesting. I don't know if this is quite where you're going with it. I'm curious to hear what you think, but I think the thing that I struggle with where and it's 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 definitely like two sides of the same coin where it's actually there's a big positive for me but also kind of a negative flip side is that where i use passion in my own creative work a lot is to get me away from my business brain and my commercial brain right so i spend all my time you know working in book publishing, I have to think all the time about projects in terms of, are they commercial? Are they marketable? Can we sell them as a book?
0: Can we sell them? Yeah. Can
1: we sell them? How can we sell them? How best can we position the book to sell it? What's the right cover? What's the right title? How do we sell it? Like, and that sounds terrible. That sounds like very like cynical and crass, but really it's my responsibility. If I am signing something up and paying money for it and, you know, cutting down trees to put it, on paper in a book then it is my job to make sure that we can actually sell it and those books aren't just going to like molder in a warehouse somewhere but that we can actually get it in the hands of readers who are actually going to pay money for it and actually pay the author and actually read it <laughs> like that is the point of the whole thing and it is a actual for-profit business so <laughs> got to do that it's the best thing for everybody but that is not the best thing for a creative practice Like I cannot be sitting in my studio thinking about starting a big new art project or writing a book and coming at it from a place of how do I sell it? Like I can't, it is paralyzing. I have tried and it is terrible. Like it does not work. So I have to find a way to shut down my business brain and my commercial brain before I can really use my artist brain. Like they're really separate. So I find passion to be a very very useful and important tool in that process. If I really tune into what I care about, what I'm excited about, what interests me, where I'm curious, where I'm interested, where my little spider sense tendrils want to lead me, it almost never steers me wrong. Like I can find a project that I like I Got very excited at the beginning of the pandemic about painting these book covers on books. So I take used books and I put book covers on them. You have one, right? Oh, you have it right there. Look, she's holding it up. You can't see, but she's got it. And then I paint the cover of the book on the physical book itself. So you end up with this object. And I started at the beginning of the pandemic and I'm still doing it. And I am very, very close, not quite there yet, but almost to have made 300 of them. Because it is something that has sustained my interest and my passion. Like, I didn't get sick of it. I didn't get bored with it. I kept interested. And this book that I'm working on right now, like, just really lights a fire under me. Like, I want to work on it. And anyone who writes knows that writing is hard to force yourself to sit down and do, right? Even if you once you get into it, you might enjoy it a lot. But the actual sitting down and putting your fingers on the keys is somehow horribly painful. (laughs) Like, it just is. I think for almost everybody. But if you have a project that makes you actually get over that hurdle, it's great. So passion is how you get there is my point. That's the plus side, right? Is if I follow my passions, I can turn off that commercial part of my brain, not worry about like, is it commercial or how do I sell it? Just worry about, do I actually want to do this and will it sustain me? But the, to answer your question, the downside of that is that it will lead me often to making projects which then are actually quite hard to sell or to do anything with. What do you do with 300 painted books? I don't know. Like, I am trying to figure that out now. I have ideas about how you could do some kind of installation or art show or bookstore like with these books. I can picture things that would be cool, but they are hard to execute. Like, it is not easy to find the right, like, place or time or way to, like, do anything. Like, it is not commercial, (laughs) I can tell you that much right now. And that's fine. That was my point going into it. Like, it's cool. Similarly, the book project I'm working on, I've known from the beginning because I know books. I know books very, very well. And I know that this book is going to be hard to sell. It's not, it's very weird. It's not very commercial. Like, I know that, but it's the book I wanted to write. And so if you follow your passion, it will definitely help you create. It may or may not help you create something that's super like marketable. And that I think is, I actually think that's fine and well and good personally, but I'm not trying to make a living off of my creativity. I have a job. And if I was trying to hustle and like actually pay my bills with this stuff, but yet all I wanted to make was the stuff I felt super passionate about, I would have gotten myself into a real problem. So there's, I think that's, again, going back to that lie we were talking about at the beginning, that binary of you should only, your job should, you know, fulfill you on every level and you should only make what you care most deeply about and it should be so wonderful. It's like it's asking I mean, you are ve- you know that you are very fortunate that you get to do what you love and make a living at it, and that's pretty rare, like, honestly. And we're telling people that th- that should be everybody all the time, that we're saying everyone should get to make and do exactly what fuels their passion, and that should pay their bills. We're asking people's magical innermost spark to pay all their bills all the time. And that is a big ask. Like mine doesn't, mine wouldn't, it won't because mine is really, really weird. And, <laughs> you know, and I know that. That's why I have a job. Like, so I don't know. I think there's a real twisty conundrum in there that I don't have an answer to, you know? Like I, 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 don't, I couldn't go to someone else and give them like advice and tell them how to solve that if that was their problem because I don't have a solution to that.
0: Yeah, I think the the... The do what you love. Do what you love, and
1: the rest will follow. Ah, no! What? Like <laughs> that is some privileged nonsense. Like no.
0: Adam J.K. has this great quote that's like, "Do what you love," and I don't know. I'm going to butcher it, but oh, like, it's so
1: long. It goes on and on and on, and you'll be like working and working and working, and then you'll be miserable, and then like
0: you know. people <laughs> expect things from you. I mean, that's the context of it. We're we're butchering it. It's much more eloquent than that. But like, I think that's so funny and. It's true. It's true. It's like I have to kind of compartmentalize so much of I mean, you knew me when nobody knew who I was and like I had I didn't have half a million Instagram followers and everything. So I went from that ten years ago to where I am today. And I have to compartmentalize so much of like my business has grown. So I have two and a half employees and you know, we run an operation and there's several arms of my business and some of that stuff stresses me out frankly, and some aspects of what I have to do, like I said earlier, I hate. And yet there are days and moments in every day when I get to do what I love. And so it's, I have to say, oh, you know, in this period of time, I'm, I like the reasons why I'm doing these things, but I don't necessarily like the activity, but I'm going to get it done. And then I get to spend these other parts of my day painting and drawing and Brainstorming with my employees and, you know, all the stuff that's super, or working in my shop, right? I have a shop in the front of my studio and I love being there and interacting with customers. So, like, I get to do enough of what I love, but there's also some crap, as opposed to there's so many things about my job that I hate that I'm not going to do it at all. And I think to the extent that we can find those nuggets of creativity or, you know, opportunities for creativity in our jobs that we can look forward to and lean into is good because let's face it, everybody's job, you know, not everybody's job is a hundred percent passion at all.
1: Yeah. And I think figuring out a mix of things that are both job and not job that allow you to arrive at a place where you are following your passions, you know, and that, that some of that will be in your job and some of it will be outside of your job, whatever that looks like, and that that's going to be different for everyone. Like I think the different for everyone piece is the piece that I think we have a hard time with sometimes. Is like because everyone's passions are going to be different. You know, if someone is a passionate cook, you know, and maybe they work in food. You know, maybe maybe that's what they do. Possibly but maybe it's not at all. Maybe they work in some other field entirely and they're doing all their passionate cooking at home. And
0: that, I don't know. I'm just- And also not every passion project has to turn into a, not every cook whose passion is cooking has to make a cookbook, right? Like, it's also like, I feel like we've gotten to this place where the expectation is you know, you're creative, you're talented, you're getting some attention for the thing or you're really good at the thing. Therefore, it should become something that other people consume. And I often think that's where, you know, the joy of the thing diminishes, right? Because it becomes work. And I'm really like, I love this idea of like passion for passion's sake or joy for joy's sake, right?
1: My mom used to call it the American compliment. You could make money at that. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that. (laughs) She's like, there are other reasons to do things. My husband bakes a pie every month and he's been doing it for, God, many, many years. I don't know how many years, five years, eight years, a really long time. And I think he's missed one like once or twice, but... He's really consistent about it. And often it gets to the very end of the month. He's like baking it on like the 31st. Um, he's like, oh my God, I haven't made a pie. better make a pie. And yes, no aspirations of doing anything with this other than just constantly improving his pie dough. Like that is his goal is to make a better pie dough. And like that's it. I mean, it's, and it fits right in your definition of, you know, a passion project in the sense of you have a constraint you have a you know recurring time period you just keep doing it like and that's it
0: i love that bridget it's been so lovely having you on the podcast today we've been talking about doing this for like a year (laughs) (laughs) and we're finally doing it you're such a special person in my life in my professional life in my personal life and i just really appreciate you giving your time today So thank you.
1: I'm so, so happy to be here. Ever since I knew you were doing a podcast, I was like,
0: oh, maybe let me help me on the podcast with Lisa. That'd
1: be so fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you were, you were definitely on my list and we finally made it happen. So thank you.
1: Thank you. This has been so fun.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode, editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber, Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.